Hello and welcome to a very okay podcast. My name is Trey Thompson. I am the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society and with me as always is Dr. Bob Blackburn. He is the former executive director and uh, Bob, it's so great to see you here today. How are things in your world? Trey, going well. We've had a beautiful fall in Oklahoma this year, a little bit more rain and just enjoying life in Oklahoma. The rain has been nice. We've desperately needed. I took my kids camping out to Lake Eufaula State Park not too long ago, and boy, was the lake low. And so I am loving seeing this rain coming through, and we need a lot more of it. So I'm not going to be disappointed by a few cloudy days if we have them this fall. I want to bring in uh, someone who's going to be talking with us, and uh, this is Dan Provo. Dan is the uh, director of the uh, Oklahoma History Center, which is our fantastic museum of Oklahoma history right here in Oklahoma City across the street from the state capitol and the building that we have uh, all of our administrative offices in. And uh, Dan has done a phenomenal job over the past 20 years of making sure that this museum has been top of the line, and we want you to all come and see it. Dan, welcome in. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be part of the conversation. Well, Dan, one of the things that has been, you know, one of your crowning achievements over the last couple of years, and, and uh, unfortunately, the, the exhibit that Oklahomans in Space is a fantastic exhibit, but we unveiled it just in time for COVID, right? <laughs> The uh, Yeah, the timing could have been better. Uh, it took about 10 years to develop, but the end result is well worth it, and we look forward to sharing it with folks for many years to come. It's a marvelous exhibit, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit, but we are talking today about Oklahomans and the space program, particularly in that really, uh, that period of the 1960s and the 1970s when the space program was really getting off the ground. So we had the uh, Gemini and the Apollo programs, and then later on, that's what leads us into the space shuttle era. But we have so many Oklahomans that have contributed to the space program. But of course, we always like to talk a little bit of pop culture, and uh, there's some of the best movies out there are space movies, right, Bob? I know you've got some favorites. Oh, I do. And, of course, when you look at the history of Oklahomans in space, you always think about tough situations and how do people deal with challenges and look for opportunities. And two recent movies that deal with both of those subjects uh, would be Matt Damon's The Martian and then uh, Sandra Bullock's movie Gravity, both of them dealing with disasters. And somehow, how can you adjust and, of course, our heroes like Gordon Cooper and Tom Stafford and, and others from Oklahoma have dealt with those kinds of situations. And so those resonated with me when I saw those at the theater. Well, The Martian is one of my favorites that you just mentioned, and it's got a great quote in it. And, and I use this quote to think about how we approach you know, running an agency and, and doing the things that we need to do, we're constantly faced with problems and things that we need to solve. And at the end of that movie, hope it's not a spoiler, but he's he's lecturing to some college students and he says, at some point, everything's going to go south on you. Everything's going to go south and you're going to have to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now you can either accept that or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math, you solve one problem, and then the next one. And I love that attitude, and that movie is great for exhibiting how solving one problem can lead to solving the next, but if you sort of hang your head and give up, that's where you're going to stay. Yeah. And one last popular culture reference, and this is for all of us central Oklahomans over the age of 70. And I'm kind of leading that crew right now. But we all remember WKY television in the 1950s with Danny Williams started a TV show called 
The Adventures of Dan D. Dynamo, 3D Danny. And he had Space Science Center, and every day we would rush home from school, and, and he, he outdrew uh, Walt Disney, Disney uh, the Disney show at the time. And we would rush, and he would take off in his Space Science Center and these adventures in space. So all of us baby boomers in the 50s, well before our first launch, we were thinking we were going to get to the moon someday. That yeah. was part of our childhood. And Danny Williams, who was a great entertainer in Oklahoma history, represented that for us every day. And now in this museum here at the History Center, Dan Provo helped put it together, we found some talented uh, people, Cameron Eagle and, and Chuck uh, Clowers. Clowers, to put together a reproduction of Space Science Center. So someone, if they're my age and older, they're going to remember Space Science Center. Come see it. You can see... Uh, 3D Danny's spacesuit that he wore on the air. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Dan, what are a couple of your favorite space movies? They, uh, there's so many. You've already talked about The Martian. And one of the things that makes space movies special to me is when you can make a, a connection to them. You know, in our case, uh, being in Oklahoma, of course, that's Donna Shirley and her connection to the first Mars rover program. And another story of, of a young woman going to the university at the University of Oklahoma, going and wanting to get an engineering degree and being told girls don't do that. And uh, 40 years later, she was an associate dean in that same college of engineering, having persevered and succeeded all the way through. Uh, I think some of my other favorites are uh, the right stuff. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. I love the progression from aviation through space flight, some of the personalities involved, and again, making connections with people that uh, have strong ties to Oklahoma, uh, as well as Apollo 13. Uh, extraordinary movie in all kinds of ways, again, with strong Oklahoma connections. Uh, directed by Ron Howard, uh, talking about Fred Hayes in it as one of the crew members. Yeah, played by Bill Paxton. Indeed. And uh, Fred Hayes, of course, went to school at OU and was in the Oklahoma Air National Guard, has strong connections to Oklahoma, continues to be back from time to time. So those dynamics, those interpersonal stories, that ability to make connections with people, those are always, I think, really particularly interesting to me. That, that great scene in Apollo 13, once again, you're talking about problem solving, and these, these space movies tend to have a, a theme along that lines. But when they dump out the big box of parts and they're, they're trying to fix the oxygen system and they say, you've got to make this square filter fit in this round hole here. And he says, you have, I don't know what it is, an hour to figure it out. And all those engineers get together and they start working on it. But for me, I would just think, well, I'm sorry. I guess they're going to die today <laughs> because I would not have that ability to do that. But uh, the level of brilliance and expertise and the, and the people that just continued to try, you know, try something, it fails, try something, it fails. I, I'm continually ex inspired by that. And the level of creative teamwork because they were all pulling together to save the lives of those people that were in space. So it was get the job done, get it done right, and get it done the best way you can at every level, from uh, the mission control, uh, mission control officers to flight engineers. Every aspect of it was a coordinated effort to succeed. Yeah, Gene Kranz at Mission Control in that movie says, I don't care what anything was designed to do, I care what it can do. <laughs> 
So, well, a couple of my favorite movies is uh, Hidden Figures came out just a few years ago in, in 2016 and had a wonderful cast, including Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Kevin Costner. But it was a, a little known story about these black mathematicians who were on the front lines. They called them computers back then because they did computations. But they were on the front lines there of uh, working on the Gemini program and making sure that that we could actually get a man into space. And uh, to see what they went through, all of the, the discrimination that they went through, just not because of their ability, to, but because of the color of their skin. That was such an inspiring movie to see what they fought through. And then, uh, of course, I have to say this one is one of my favorites, and uh, it's not based in reality, but it's Mel Brooks's Spaceballs, and uh, uh, a fantastic spoof of the Star Wars movie. Uh, let me see if I can do my best Dark Helmet impression here. Uh, and now you see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. <laughs> That's my dark helmet. I hope it was good. If not, I'll have Aaron cut it out. So, <laughs> uh, But there's a lot of great space movies out there, and uh, uh, encourage you guys to check those out when you have a chance. But, Bob, we, we have, for a, a state, we have about, what, 3.5 million, 4 million people in the state of Oklahoma we're probably as big as we have been. So going back through time, we've been a much smaller state in population. We've punched way above our weight in terms of Oklahomans contributing to the space program. And when you come into that uh, gallery, Dan, that you guys have put together, and along a whole wall is a whole line of Oklahomans who have contributed. And those are just the, the astronauts, not counting the people at flight and mission control. But we have had a lot of people contribute to the space program. Bob, what do you attribute that to? Well, really three things, and I'll try to keep this short. One is the history of Oklahoma being a landlocked state, far from anything else, very few resources in the beginning, and transportation was always a challenge. So as I always like to say, how do you overcome challenge, look for opportunities? And so generally people who could go farther, a little more cheaply, more efficiently, were succeeding. And so Oklahomans were defined by mobility. In fact, Errol Gibson wrote a, a great essay for me when I was editor of the Chronicles on that defining issue of mobility. How do you get there? How do you get there quicker? Well, you combine that with the pioneer story, the, one of the last frontiers settled and people coming here who had faced challenges in their old communities. They come, they work a little harder, they try a little bit more, they understand teamwork, helping each other. And so you get the personal values with a pioneer spirit, with this emphasis on mobility. And so people like to go fast. They like to go higher. The, the Wiley Post story of the world, that's yeah. sort of a, the typical story you, you come away with there in all those pioneers of, of his generation. But then you throw on top of that the fact that two things came together in the 1950s. One was that we had the king of the Senate, Robert S. Kerr, from Ader, Oklahoma, who was born in, literally born in a log cabin in Indian Territory, uh, has an oil company, gets into diversified industries, becomes a governor of the state of Oklahoma during World War II, coming out, becomes a U.S. senator. And probably he and Lyndon Johnson were the, were the driving forces of the U.S. Senate in the 1950s, just as we were entering another phase of world history that would impact all of this, and that was the Cold War. So by the time you get the Truman administration after World War II and the Soviet bloc hunkering down and saying we are going to control, we're going to control as much of the world as we can with our way of life, our form of government, our socialistic system of economics. And the two 
halves of the world split. And the tension uh, sometimes is forgotten. Right now, we're thinking of it with the war uh, in Ukraine. But in the 1950s, uh, the world was going to come to an end. We really thought that yeah. in the 1950s. And the Cold War was real. And it was survival. And so you get this motivation at the national level. Somehow we have to compete with this Soviet way. And as a despotism with unilateral control, they could move quicker. A democracy is messy, as we're seeing in, in politics. It's messy. But we have strengths that they did not have, of course. And with the edge in technology, we're competing. But then you get to the point where when the nation says we have got to compete, and then Sputnik, when the Soviets flew into space before us, the entire country was petrified. They're going to beat us to space. They're going to use that in this Cold War. They're going to be able to fire down on our country and uh, in this new dimension of mobility and weapons. And suddenly the country said, we've got to fight back. In the Eisenhower administration and the Kennedy administration, all of this is happening when we have one of the guiding forces in the U.S. Senate, Robert S. Kerr, who says, yeah, we're going to be involved with it. You get this spirit of Oklahomans at the core saying, yes, we want to go higher and faster. We want to do more. We'll work hard. We'll learn. And this emphasis on, no on mobility. Those three things came together that Oklahomans were punching well above their weight when it came to those first generations of uh, space exploration. And Dan, so October 4th, 1957 is when Sputnik is launched. And there's a fascinating podcast about the space program that I encourage everyone to listen to in addition to our great podcast, but it's called Moonrise and it was done by the Washington Post. And in that podcast, Lillian Cunningham, who is the host, talks about how Eisenhower wasn't particularly concerned about Sputnik, what didn't really register on his radar, but LBJ was very concerned about this, and LBJ used this as a way to start ginning up support for the space program. And remember, 1958 is when NASA is formed. Dan, in, um, in 1961, May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy in a joint session of Congress says this, First, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade of out, is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. What does that do for the space program? I think that's the real, real jumpstart to everything because he's committing the nation, the nation's treasure, resources, creativity, and some of the very best minds around to making that a reality. And you can see it throughout the space program. Uh, young engineers, scientists, pilots, test pilots, uh, answering NASA's call, coming together, and basically inventing something that had never been done before. And you see it over and over again, the ability to look at a problem, to apply critical thinking to it and say, yes, nobody's ever done it before, but it needs to be done, so this is what we're going to try. And all these folks coming together to pool their talents uh, is just an extraordinary story just by all kinds of extraordinary people. And we've the first one of the first programs is the Mercury program. You have the Mercury Seven, and we've got an Oklahoman who was part of the Mercury Seven. Can you talk a little bit about Gordon Cooper? Sure, Gordon Cooper uh, from Shawnee, Oklahoma, uh, is represented there in several ways right now as well. Uh, but again, a test pilot, uh, a person who was striving to go higher, faster, and farther than other people had gone, and the ability to again take risks, the ability to assess a situation, the ability to react appropriately under pressure. 
uh, all those things are critical elements, and he certainly possessed them and demonstrated them over and over again. He was the uh, command pilot on Gemini 5 in 1965. Um, he was a piloted Faith 7, which was the last and longest of the Mercury flights on May 15th to 16th, 1963. So a, a guy who grew up in Shawnee is one of the pioneers of the space program. That's pretty fascinating. It's a tremendous story, but again, we see it over and over again. Uh, you see it in the story of General Stafford growing up in Weatherford. You see it in the story of other astronauts either from or associated with the state. Uh, people growing up in Enid, Oklahoma and becoming astronauts. Uh, people adopting the state, such as uh, Shannon Lucid, who was born in China as uh, to missionary parents, but adopted Bethany as her hometown and grew up there and the impact that she had. Again, an extraordinary story. When you look at it, she's a little-known individual, but she flew in space seven times. That's a remarkable achievement. And again, it's this quiet determination because she was also told girls don't do this. And she said, uh-huh, and then went ahead and did it. Uh, so that's part of the story as well. And we have Fred Hayes, uh, who was on the Apollo 13 mission, which we just talked about that movie. But he was born in Mississippi, but graduated from the University of Oklahoma with a, a degree in aeronautical engineering, became an astronaut in 1966. And so uh, another Oklahoman who is a very well-accomplished astronaut. Now, talking about the Apollo program, uh, one of our own, General Tom Stafford, who we're going to talk to here in just a few minutes, he was the pilot on that Apollo 10 mission, and that Apollo 10 mission set the stage, Bob, for, uh, for the lunar landing with Apollo 11 in, in July of 1969. But without Apollo 10, that doesn't happen. That's right, because you know he had been a pioneer in so many parts of the space program from the time that he got into the NASA programs, and really, he, he chose the site for the landing you know, what all of us around the world were watching when Neil Armstrong set that foot on the moon. Well, that's, that site had been chosen by Tom Stafford, and he overcame so many challenges and came up with the technical solutions, the human solutions, and just a remarkable person, and uh, we really owe a lot to Tom Stafford. Now, I wasn't born yet when the moon landing happened, but do you both have recollections of, of that moment? Absolutely. Uh, through the whole space program of the 60s, very clear memories of being glued to the, the little black and white television set and watching these events unfold, which was just remarkable, uh, up to and including uh, the first lunar landing. And when you look at those things, one of the things that's fascinating about what we do in museums is along the way you get to meet some extraordinary people. And the stories that Tom Stafford, that Fred Hayes, that others tell, not all history is in the history books. And you get their stories. Uh, I once heard a, a visitor ask Tom Stafford, were you ever tempted on Apollo 10 to just go down and land on the moon, just to be the very first one? And he looked him right in the eye and said, never, that was not my mission. Yeah. So again, a team effort, mission-oriented, the success of all, and that was the focus. Give everything you've got for the success of the total program. Mm -hmm. And Trait, the uh, you know Dan has been a part of the History Center since the very beginning. We hired Dan, I think, ninety-nine. 
I just become deputy director, or excuse me, executive director. And so Dan was one of the first big hires. And I told him at the time, I says, the History Center is going to be yours. Let's make it work. We had uh, Bob Thomas, my deputy director, who was an architect. I said, guys, once in a lifetime opportunity. Well, in the planning documents, I'd already had several iconic parts of Oklahoma history when I was trying to sell it to the legislature and to the public to raise the money. And one of the things I had in it was a spacecraft. I wanted a flown spacecraft. So that was there in the very beginning, along with the Winnie Mae, USS Oklahoma Silver Service, and there were a ditch witch, I remember, but two or three things using as an image. Well, of course, Dan was the perfect partner to follow through with that. And so we kept looking for a spacecraft to put in the museum. And with, with General Stafford's help, we said, we need to get the Apollo 10 spacecraft from a museum in London. And General Stafford be- believed that it was undervalued there and not very well appreciated. So we started working on that. We went to the Smithsonian several times. We worked with a head, General Daly, I'll never forget, mm-hmm. some of our early meetings there. We couldn't get it uh, because it was right at a, at a bad time when President Bush at the time needed to be working with our British allies more so, so he didn't want to mess with the British Museum. So that's when we got the Gemini spacecraft from St. Louis. And that was one of the, the, the primary focal points in the, in the first days of the History Center. And then later, of course, we had a chance to get a flown Apollo spacecraft with Oklahoma connections. But Dan was there the whole way leading that effort. We had another member of our team, Bill Moore, a very gifted videographer who I had hired even earlier than that when I was deputy director. Bill came in with our video program, and he eventually uh, would do a documentary series on Oklahomans in space. So Bill was a partner in all of that, working with Dan. And and so the exhibit you see today is really the results of 20 years trying to build up this story of Oklahomans in space. You know, you talk about some of those early efforts, and I have very clear memories of you and I in uh, Washington with General Stafford at the Air and Space Museum and the extraordinary nature of walking around in that museum, the most visited museum in the world. And here are these iconic aircraft and iconic spaceships. And and Bob and I are walking around with General Stafford and people don't know. And you want to say, people, look, look who. This is, this is an extraordinary American hero. And uh, typically, he drew no attention to himself. He was just quiet, but it was a special moment to talk with him and have him point out how these different things worked. And there was a mock-up of Apollo Soyuz and talking about the connections and the problems and the different circumstances there. Uh, Definitely the real deal. Well, just a few months ago, you came and got me in my office and you said, Trait, you want to meet an astronaut? And I about bolted out of my chair like it had a spring set into it. I was like, well, heck yeah, do rattlesnakes kiss carefully? Of course I want to meet an astronaut. And so uh, we go downstairs, and John Harrington is down there. And uh, John Harrington, who's the first Native American into space, he's Chickasaw. And uh, he lives up in Montana now, but he was here. And it was so fascinating because we, we we were down there showing him some of the exhibits and everything. He had a kid came into with a, with their family came into there and we said hey see that picture of that guy on the wall f- waving from space that's that guy and his his eyes just got about as big as dinner plates as he's kind of putting that two and two together that he's meeting an astronaut well i felt the same way there's just something about somebody that has done something 
that only a few people in the world have ever done. That's just, it, it gives you a, a, just a feeling of pride that you even get to be in their airspace. It's, uh, again, when you get to talk with these different folks and the progression in time from the, the earliest astronauts through Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, uh, Skylab, into the shuttle programs, uh, it gives you a window to history that is a very special window and uh, something that uh, we're privileged to be a part of and to be able to take a glimpse through that window into some of the the really little-known elements of history. And Dan, in sort of the focal point of that space gallery here in uh, the Oklahoma History Center is the Skylab 4 Apollo space capsule. Can you talk a little bit about that? We also had an Oklahoma, and that was on that mission. We did. Again, this comes back to the fact that uh, Oklahomans have been involved in every aspect of the manned space program. The only state that can make that claim, there are states with more astronauts, but no state has been involved in every single step along the way. Uh, in this particular case, things came together to allow us to move forward and bring a flown Apollo command module here. Uh, the technical designation is CM-118. And up until just recently with SpaceX, it continued to hold the record for the longest duration in space of any U.S. spacecraft. Uh, and it wasn't the shuttles, it wasn't other things that broke those records. It was here just within the last year or so. And its uh, pilot was Bill Pogue, another Oklahoman. So there were three flown missions to Skylab in 1973 and four. Oklahomans were on two of them, uh, Owen Garriott and then Bill Pogue. Again, it's an extraordinary example of the commitment and dedication of these folks. And just so folks will understand, the Skylab program was the predecessor to the International Space Station. It was America's first space station. And what they did was they modified sections of a Saturn rocket and put that into space and then had three Apollo command modules fly up to that and dock for varying lengths of time and conducting experiments in a way that America had never been in a position to do before. Uh, that was part of, of the preparation for a long-term space station as well as the possibility of longer duration space flights, uh, the opportunity to go back to the moon, to go to Mars and other things of that nature. And part of the central feature of those missions was also a telescope. This was called the Apollo Telescope, and there's a, a strange acronym for it. But uh, they had an opportunity on that last Apollo flight to, from space, view the comet Kohotek. That had never been done before. Uh, so just first after first after first, spacewalks, just all sorts of extraordinary circumstances. Well, Bob, we have a special guest that's coming in to talk with us, and I got to say, American hero, General Tom Stafford. What a guy, what a whole list of accomplishments he's had. I'm really excited to talk to him. Yes, well, General Stafford has been a good friend to the Oklahoma Historical Society, to the state of Oklahoma. His museum in Weatherford is outstanding. We've Dan and I have watched that come together over the years. And Max Aries, the director now, has done a great job with that. And they've been good partners with us. And so what we do here on The Story in Space is coordinated some to some degree with what General Stafford has been doing in Weatherford. But he's a good friend, and uh, we treasure a lot of the memories of working with him over the years. Well, let's bring him into the program. Tom Stafford is a renowned test pilot and astronaut, but he wasn't always famous. Tom started life as a small-town Oklahoma kid. 
His mother came to Oklahoma in a covered wagon and lived to see her only child fly to the moon. His father was a dentist who taught his son to appreciate what he had by working hard for it. Tom found a love for heights at age four when he climbed his first windmill and was certain he was on top of the world. This is where his desire to go higher and faster began. Through a lot of hard work and some natural abilities, Tom would make his way to the top 10% at the U.S. Naval Academy, become a three-star general in the U.S. Air Force, and be known as the first astronaut to become a general and the first general to fly in space. Over the course of his career, General Stafford flew four cutting-edge space missions. He became the chief of astronauts at NASA, was appointed the head of research and development at the Pentagon. He chaired the team that developed the Hubble Instrument COSTAR, which stands for Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, and worked at Area 51 and is responsible for, for its stealth technology as we know it today. He and his best friend, Alexei Leonov, who was a Russian cosmonaut, were the beginning of the end of the Cold War when they teamed up on the Apollo-Soyuz test project. General Stafford also chaired a team to carry out President Bush's vision of returning to the moon and then on to explore Mars. And today he serves as chairman of the NASA Advisory Council Task Force for ISS Safety and Operational Readiness, advises member of, members of Congress on aerospace-related subjects, serves on advisory boards for NASA, and works as an aerospace consultant. General Stafford has the most complete and comprehensive career of all the surviving astronauts. And General Stafford, welcome into the program. And I just want to ask you, you know, why didn't you apply yourself more in your life? It seems like you could have done so much more. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's a real good question. The, um, well, I guess I was brought up as a little boy, you know, never to be idle or anything like that. And my mother and father kind of instinctively instilled in me, you know, not to work as a sin, basically. So I'm always thinking or doing something, designing things or being involved with pushing frontiers forward. It's just a lot of fun, too. Well, tell us a little bit. You grew up in Weatherford. And tell us a little bit about how a kid that grows up in Weatherford, you, what what was that passion, what was inside of you that made you want to reach for the stars? Well, uh, remember Weatherford was at the edge of the Dust Bowl uh, there in, in the 30s and in the mid-30s. and I was born in 1930, and then when I was old, five or six years old, you know, the dust storms would come, but also... Now, Route 66 was our went, was the main street when it went through Weatherford, went right down the main street and out. And that was was right underneath the first transcontinental air route, where American Airlines and TWA were flying DC-3s. And every day, as a little kitty, I'd see, you know, two or three of these planes go by every day. I'd look up, and that just looked so fantastic, and. I just said, I want to do that. So those DC-3s from American and DWA really inspired me. And so I said, I always wanted to do it. <laughs> kind of a side person. I remember one incident. I wanted to build a little, uh, a powered model plane. I built little model airplanes and have rubber bands to turn the propeller. But I wanted to buy one that had the smallest engine is made I could afford and so dad said you got to go out and work for it. so we had a client that had a farm out 
uh, owing away to hydro. Caesar folks. Uh, so it was cotton season, picking season. So my mother got me overalls and knee pads and all that in the cotton sack. So I went out and would go up and down the rows, you know, snapping cotton and throwing it in the bag. And you'd weigh it at the end of each row. It was dusty and the wind was blowing. And I said, you know, this, this wasn't too inspiring to me. <laughs> There's got to be something better out there, right? Yeah, and I, you know, again, it was fairly close to, to Route 66. So during that, that Saturday, I worked doing that. I would uh, see, uh, I did that for several Saturdays back to get enough money to buy that little airplane that you but I see these DC-3s come over. And I, you know, I thought, I'm going to get the hell out of this place. <laughs> General, one of the things, uh, looking at your book, We Have Capture, you talked a lot about early aviation and how that motivated you and, and drove the first part of your career. And I was struck by the fact that you always seem to have a clear vision of being a pilot, wanting to go higher, wanting to go faster, wanting to go farther. Uh, I, I wondered about that and, and the importance of that throughout your life. Well, yeah, I, that was kind of a driving thing. I wanted to fly, go faster. So I did it, you know, after the commission in the Air Force and pilot training. And I always wanted to fly the latest airplanes. And the chance to fly the latest and the fastest go highest would be a test pilot. So I applied for the test pilot school, was accepted, and uh, worked hard, graduated one of my class, was assigned then to the performance section of the test pilot school as both a test pilot and an instructor. And while I was there, I helped to co-author two textbooks one was a pilot's handbook for uh, performance flight testing. The other was aerodynamics handbook for performance flight testing. So, you know, I just uh, And then the space uh, program came along as far as human space flight. So I said, well, that sure is higher and faster, and particularly when Kennedy said he, he had this... Uh, national goal they set the goal of going to the moon that's definitely got to be higher and faster so yeah it was all it was all just a kind of a one two three four and strive for going higher and faster and take advantage of good things technical and work hard and do better so. general this is bob uh of, of your yeah. years as a young pilot what was the first plane that you flew? And then secondly, what was your favorite? What was the most maneuverable that, that you felt like you were one with the craft? Well, Bob, the uh, first plane I ever got off above the ground when I was about 15 years old. My math teacher really liked me. I guess I was one of her star pupils. I always talked about flying. So she had a lady who was a flight instructor. Weatherford had a grass strip two wooden hangers and about five or six old Piper Cubs, Taylor Crafts. So he had this lady named Jessie Duncan, a friend of uh, Mrs. Spann, my math teacher. And so she took me up for a ride in a Taylor Craft, showed me the controls and all that. So I was just fascinated where you could look out and see the horizon. 
do banks and turns and all this. She did a little, oh, wow, that was super. So that, that was the first plane. The plane that I, I really like is my first fighter plane. It was the F-86D, the first uh, swept wing plane with an afterburner. Of course, it wasn't some of the control systems on the well, the afterburner was too reliable. Had a few close calls. <laughs> and the, uh, but then the plane I flown is the most maneuver I really love. And I made inputs to the flight control system. I just finished Apollo Soyuz and went back to Edwards this time as commanding general of the flight test center. And we had the prototype, the YF-16. So I was the 13th test pilot to ever fly. I got after I got back down, I said, this plane's got a great potential. But I said, what dumb bastard designed this flight control system? <laughs> I said, it didn't have a centering. It's a, fly, a side stick fly-by-wire force. But they didn't put what you call hysteresis where you come up on a ramp. And then when you're in the center where you're not doing it, make anything, you can't really fit it if you don't have this little Flash place and goes up, you know, like a 45 degree angle coming down toward the center of the little flat place and going down 45. Same way in pitch. But roll was a real thing. You try to do a roll and you'd rush it around. And so I mean, so as a result of that, after I wrote up a whole thing, that's kind of interesting. I was a two star then. I wrote this. Uh, the discrepancy up against the airplane recommended uh, put hysteresis in that control. So you have a little, about an eighth of an inch movement in that stick. Also, the stick was way too big. If you're a gorilla, it could be okay, as big as it was. The human hand is a little bit smaller. And uh, so the stick is way too big. And it needs to be candid because, it, you know, just put your, you're sitting down, put your, just close your fist a little bit. Like have your index finger or your middle finger touching your thumb on your hand, you'll notice that say everybody's really right. Put your hand down on your leg. Draw an axis to that, you'll see it's about twelve degrees. General, among the I was gonna say among the, the many remarkable aspects of your career are the sheer number and variety of aircraft that you have piloted. Yes, sir. Well, I've flown I think about 125, 26. Gosh, that'd be eight. I think that includes about eight helicopters, Dan. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then also I've flown in four different spacecraft, which I think is uh, a Gemini, the Apollo Command and Service Module, the Apollo Lunar Module, and the, then the Soviet, now the Russian Soyuz. Well, so, so let's talk a little bit about some of those outer space adventures. In 1962, you were selected by NASA to participate in the Gemini and Apollo programs. In 1965, you piloted Gemini 6. In 1966, you, you were the commander of Gemini 7. What, what was the importance of those? Gemini 9. Oh, sorry, Gemini 9. I uh, misread my notes here. What were the importance of those Gemini missions in terms of preparing for the Apollo missions? Well, you know, President Kennedy set the goal on 25 May 1961. That's what we'd you know, go to the moon, but all we'd flown, this was about three weeks uh, after, 
nearly three weeks, yeah, after Al Shepard's flight on May the 5th, 1961. But he'd only gone about 150 miles an hour to the joint, airborne for about 15 minutes. I think he went about 300 miles downrange. He was going to go land on the moon. Well, that is a big leap. Yeah, yeah. So so I said, we got to have an interim program to develop the techniques to train the astronauts, to also help train the, the ground flight controllers and everybody in the system. So the Gemini program, they came up and said, what's our the main, the biggest booster available at the time? It was a, the biggest intercontinental ballistic missile we had, which was the Titan II. And uh, so they did what it would carry it would be about 8,000 pounds maximum in a lower circular orbit. So I said, well, we'll have two, we could we'll get two people into it. Since Mercury weighed about 3,500 to 4,000 pounds, one person. So that's how the Gemini program, which is from the, the constellation, you know, Gemini has two stars, Castor and Pollux. So Gemini came along as a real, and believe me, also just played in so much. Without Gemini, Apollo would have been an unmitigated disaster. Wow. When you were talking about Gemini in the past, you always talked about it being a stepping stone, a whole series of steps all designed to allow the nation to go to the moon and make a successful mission of that. Right. Well, there are several things. One is decided to run, which is when he decided to go and start with. Dr. Gil Ruth in Houston, this is before I came on board, he said we need just a huge booster. It'd be about two and a half times bigger than Saturn V, and you'd drop off stages as you'd go Earth orbit and trans lunar injection and dropping off stages and the lunar orbit. But I know somewhat this is a way that the Soviets looked towards their end one, but they didn't have the technology we had for hydrogen in the upper stages, which gives you the real payload for specific impulse. And the key thing was this theory of rendezvous that this Dr. John Hubel from Langley came said this will drastically reduce the size, reduce the cost, uh, and in the end reduce the risk. And he was absolutely right, but it was hard to sell. Even Von Braun, he he had an idea of maybe two boosters at rendezvous and Earth orbit. Each one is about one and a half times bigger than Saturn V. Then you take off on that direct, you know, flight out, and then uh, you land the whole thing in direct ascent coming back versus a rendezvous. But Hubel really kept pushing this, and thank God, Dr. Siemens, who was a deputy administrator, had a technical background. He was dean of aerospace, MIT. He understood it right away and pushed it. And there were several old people in the scientific community against it. They wanted to go like Gilbert the director. And I didn't realize all the spies, but I was still a test pilot, Edwards. And, and this was announced in July of 1962 would use the lunar orbit rendezvous to, this is the way we could, could approach landing on the moon and coming back the way that was. Uh, we could do it faster, better, safer, smaller, less cost. 
And that was announced. And then I was selected about two months later. Then due to a series of events as far as light crew assignments. The first time, it was not announced to the public, but into the group announced it. We couldn't talk to anybody. The first crew was going to be Al Shepard and myself. So I was really happy. I was walking on cloud nine. Here I'll be the first one in my group to be able to fly. Nine astronauts that were selected there. In fact, on my 32nd birthday. So I was just feeling great. And then about three weeks later, Shepard got me aside and said, hey, I've got big problems. I've got a mid-year syndrome in here. So I've been grounded. I can't fly until mm. we get squared away. So, you know, the commander always used his spot. So Al and I were... We got along great together. Gussie, I got along with him, but Gus got along with John Young better, so Gus said he wanted to fly with John Young. Oh, man, I was really John in the dumps. And so, and then about 30 minutes later, Wally Sherrard came into my office and shut the door and said, hey, you know, we're changing crews around. He said, Gus and John fly the first one. That's just three orbits. Then there's that's Gemini three, and then four, and five are long duration orbits. But, but you and I are going to do the first rendezvous in space. It'll only be a one day mission, but we're going to fly. Really fly. We're not going to bore holes. Okay, so so that's how I ended up in the rendezvous sequence. And then I real fast. I went back up originally on nine and then to fly 12, but tragically, the nine crew made some mistakes in weather. In fact, I was flying their wing, and they broke off. And there's some things, an accident board, and they made some bad decisions and tragically were killed. Mm-hmm. So then I took over as commander of Gemini 9, flew that seven months after I flew Gemini 6, did three different types of rendezvous. You know, one's an early phase, like we'd be standing the overhead, one, a ballistic one, which was probably the toughest rendezvous I flew, me show up. Command and service module picking up a lunar module in low but just got there disabled. And then the first obstacle all obstacle tracking section. And uh, then Cerner was the first one to walk in space around the world. General, General uh, you mentioned several of those those pioneering astronauts who became friends and, and colleagues of yours. Of course, uh, the first astronaut to, to fly from Oklahoma, Gordon Cooper. Uh, did you get to know Gordon in those years? I, fortunately, I got to interview him before he passed away, but uh, he was a great interview. And uh, just wondering if you had any memories that come back uh, oh, on Gordon. Sure. Gordon was a real good friend of mine. In fact, I remember people always say, where were you when President Kennedy was assassinated? Well, Gordon and I were having lunch at the Ellington Officers Club back when we flew together in a T-33 that day, just, you know, proficiency. But we're in the officer's club having a quick bite of lunch. When the waitress came in, they just shot the president. We didn't quite understand it. She said in Dallas. So then before we finished lunch, she came back and told us that the president was dead. Mm. So I, that's why I remember Gordo walked. He, he was a wonderful type. I flew quite a few, just T-33, T-38 missions with him. We got along good. And he was your backup on Apollo 10, right? 
Gordo was my backup for Apollo 10, right? Well, speaking of the Apollo program, um, you know, you, the Apollo program in your piloting of the uh, Apollo 10 mission in 1969 really did set the stage for Apollo 11. And you did everything except land on the moon. I, I just as a layperson, I just want to know what what is it like? You're sitting there on the launch pad; those rockets are firing up. What does that feel like? And what's going through your mind before you launch launch out of the atmosphere? Well, before ignition, you're, I don't know if you saw the the movie, the right stuff. Yes. When uh, the shepherd was there, when I think up for our first flight. So, uh, <clears throat> like something like, oh, God, please don't let me screw up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, when I was just real critical on launching, that's a real hazardous phase of flight, probably the most hazardous of the whole thing. Uh, out there, you get to about eight-tenths the speed of the orbital velocity. So if anything's going to happen to you, will be in that phase. It could happen other places, too, sure. But then, you know, this is where, at that time, where most of the problems occur. You had maximum uh, dynamic pressure. You went through that vibration, heating, and everything on the way out. You do have lots of heat on the way in, but it's a fairly static, even though it's a, uh, you're changing velocity vectors all the time. But the, the real hazard always was was the launch space. So you got to, you just got to be able to react like a cat. The general, when you, you say react like a cat, that makes me think, too, of the application of your test pilot skills. It seems like over and over again through the space program, the astronauts early on that had all been pilots, test pilots, that ability to quickly assess the situation and act effectively was a critical thing several times during the history of the programs. Oh, it sure was, like on Gemini 6, our first launch attempt, the engines lifted off. <clears throat> well, the engine ignited at uh, minus three seconds, and then exactly at T0. The, the liftoff signals came, <clears throat> and the engine shut down. And we knew we had a dead man's curve for about three quarters of a second there. And so under the mission rules said we should have ejected. But Wally and I both knew from the training we had, our basic instincts and everything, that we hadn't lifted off. That was a close call. And then later on, Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott, they did the first docking because Wally and I couldn't dock with seven. It was put there as a target, Jimmy Seven. And then but Neil and Dave Scott rendezvous the next mission with the Gina target there. And then went in the nighttime, everything was fine. Then the whole mat, the joint mass started to rock back and forth and shake. And they assumed, well, the Gemini is okay coming up to us, so it was probably the Gina. So we kneel and dock. They really started to spin up. They had a roll thruster stuck on it. And they were spinning up to one revolution a second. Whoa. And they're about to red out. The blood was going to the head of it. So that was a close call. In fact, I was over flying the simulator in Houston with uh, CERN when I came and said, hey, 
come over to Mission Control quick said that Chimney Ace is going to make an emergency reentry. They've gone through the, the fuel in one ring and they're down to a half of the fuel in the second ring of the reentry control system. But Neil did a great job getting there. So those are the two big close calls we had in Chimney. Well, sir, speaking of close calls, when you're in the uh, in the lunar landing craft and you were not far above the surface of the moon on that particular flight, I think you had a similar issue you had to deal with as a pilot of getting control. Can you describe that particular moment and lead up to that? Oh, well, we, fortunately, we had the lunar module, lunar module 4, and it hadn't undergone the super weight improvement program that they gave Grumman like $10,000 a pound for every pound they could pull out of the decent stage. So we were too heavy to land. And Neil had one that could barely make it. He had some weight pulled out. And the other ones got better and they put more fuel and changed the tank configuration. So we're, we're coming down, we did this pass coming down twice to nine miles above the moon, photo map, radar map, visually make observations. And to pick out in this ellipse, pick out potential landing sites. Now, with that, on the second rope, when it came down to Paralune, which is the lowest point in the orbit around the moon, just before we stage we're going, starting dusk and nighttime around the moon. And the thruster started to fire a little bit. I looked down, shot it up. A yaw rate on my on my rate gyros, but yet the thing went, yaw thing by the eight ball I had wasn't moving. And I see it just going in the darkness. I could tell you what I couldn't figure out what was going on for just a second. Then a warning light popped off. That was an electrical hiccup. And then it started to fire again, so we were all buttoned up. So and I reached over to a switch. And it reached over, I hit, hit the wrong switch with the primary abort guidance system, which says point the X axis up at the command module where John was. So that was swinging us right over towards the area that we could lock up the gimbals of the inertial platform because we only had a three gimbal platform where the Gemini had a four gimbal. He said, we'll never make that mistake again in any design because <laughs> what we did for the Apollo initial guidance platform, we took the Polaris Navy's ballistic missile platform. We just put that over in Apollo. That was the guidance. So, real fast, all the attitude control thrusters in Germany were on the, uh, those four thrusters and four quad arrangements around the upper stage, which weighed 1,140 fuel, but down below with everything on it. It had to control the spacecraft that weighed about oh, 34,000 pounds. So I just decided I knew I'd get better control. Those thrusters was controlling 11,000, and I put 34,000. So I just blew off the descent stage about 40 seconds early. And headed towards Gimbal Lock, I flew around there. I got, we were starting to spin about 60 degrees a second. Wow. So I flew, 
concerned that he'd been looking out the window and suddenly the horizon kept spinning around. Oh, my gosh. So that's when Luther got on a hot mic. Cerny was accused of saying some bad words. We gave him <laughs> right in the text. Well, you you mentioned the microphone. One of the remarkable things about that mission is listening to you talk about the situation. You'd swear you're just walking down the street uh, <laughs> rather than a quarter of a million miles away in a very difficult, potentially, situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to, it was a one, two, three, four there. You know, I would never simulated that emergency, but at least... I guess the thousands of hours I had flying, and, uh, and those two previous space missions, all this and the different sp- aircraft up on so it's kind of all went together just to make that boom, boom, boom decision like that. Wow. Well, and you talk about the, the boom, boom, boom decisions, you talk about all the firsts, because every Gemini was a first, and then your flight on Apollo 10 was a first, and all those things building towards the lunar landing, but with not a lot of room for error all along the way. That's right. You know, we, and we did it in such a short period of time that Kennedy said we'll go to the moon, I like the words, and safely return. Right. <laughs> Before the end of the decade. So that was the January 31st, 69. And after that tragic fire that set us back for 18 months or so. We were really up against it. But once we started flying, we were with him. Apollo 7. That was Sherrall was commander. I was his backup. The back room of John Young and Gene Cerny. There in October of 68, we had just only about uh, no, 14 months to go to reach Kennedy's goal. And so we, in, uh, in nine months, we flew five missions and four of them the giant Saturn V, but three of those were to the moon. So that's, that's how fast-paced the program was. That is a fast timeline. I want to get into yes, the, the Apollo-Soyuz uh, mission, July 1975, and you know, this is this is certainly a unique time in history. The United States and the Russians were enemies on the ground, but this is the first time that we're linking together up in space. Can you tell us a little bit about? Um, you know, I've got to. Uh, I've been to your museum in Weatherford. I think there's a bottle of whiskey there that uh, everybody has signed. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationships with the Russian cosmonauts? Well, we'll put it in probably the proper perspective. Then it was the Soviet cosmonauts. Okay. Because we all—I do the same thing. Intermittently use at that time use the word Soviet and Russian. Now, Russia was a, the native background, but the political spectrum they were all living under was the Soviet Union. You see, you used to see that on their airliners, like the CCCP, as we'd see it. Right. That really, in the Cyrillic alphabet, that's really a SSSR, which is Sayu Sovietsky Socialist Tichesky Respublik. Took me 30 minutes with my Oklahoma accent to learn how to say that whole thing. <laughs> I'll bet. I don't even want to try and repeat it. So that was the uh, 
what we had. So we didn't. And so you know, I I'd never spoken any Russian, so we we were, uh, had the crew. I made the push too that uh, that we'd have the crews announced two uh, years before flight, and the Soviets only wanted to have the crews announced six months before flight. And so I I said no way. And, so the Dr. Fletcher, the administrator, then of NASA, and Chris Kraft, the center director there, you know, they, they all backed me up. And so we, there in February of, uh, of, of 1972, which would be two years and about uh, four, about five, two years, oh, four months, we announced our crew. So, Boom, we did that in the press right away. Went to the Soviets, okay, the American has announced this crew, where's your crew? So we forced them into a little bit of a box. And then they announced their crews at the Paris Air Show over there. The Le Bourget in, in, in June there, July of 1972, 73, pardon me. The, so, uh... But we, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm assuming you, uh, you're comfortable with Leonov's quote when a reporter asked him uh, what language is going to be spoken, and he said Russian, English, and Oklahoman? Yes, sir. He called it Oklahomaski. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Out of the four missions I flew, as far as the training, the most difficult was the the Apollo Soyuz is not due to any technicalities to me, is it? It's a piece of cake, technically. But I, I knew that I had to speak the, so, the Russian language as well as they spoke English. Wow. And there'd be about, about a billion people see us on live TV. So I had to, at the, at all the six different tenses you have, and, and you have consonants together, you know, so. I used to get Charlie horses in my tongue and my cheek to learn how to speak that language. General, is it, it fair to say, though, that even before Apollo Soyuz, you were involved in building bridges between NASA and the Soviet Space Agency? I think you were involved in several opportunities to reach out to the Soviets, weren't you? Well, the one primary thing, they had the three cosmonauts went to their first little space station for a month and coming back in the Soyuz had a poor design. And they, went, they didn't have any pressure suits on. And when they retrofired, they got they retrofired and they blew off the orbital module. That ball in the front, but that's where they live most of the time. And then the service module, they blew off the orbital module. They had a uh, an air pressurization valve to bring in outside air when they were on the parachutes down about eighteen to 20,000 feet. And also when it went out, the ball is locked. It's like an automotive valve with a little niche in it around the, the valve and some balls locked in it. So once it op opened up, it, you couldn't close them. And they had no way to a secondary valve swing. So, and tragically, the crew just died of hypoxia and air embolism. 
so I was in, in Europe at the time with my wife and two daughters. Then we were in Frankfurt. Got to, I was then heading the astronaut group, having replaced Al Shepard there in '69. And uh, it was after I got back from the moon, and so I was over there. And I got a call and said that they decided to have me represent President Nixon and Americans at the funeral, which would be the next day. So I had to fly, you know, about half the night down to Belgrade, Yugoslavia. They had an Air Force plane fly me to Copenhagen, and they had a SAS DC-9. It's myself, the pilot, co-pilot, and two flight attendants. That's a charter, so we took off from Copenhagen to Moscow. It was a short night, so, of course, it's the daylight up there at the time, so I just got a couple of blankets and put, laid down in the aisle and got some pillows and put a kind of one over my head to keep the sunlight out. Flew that time, so I didn't have much sleep. You know, got there, and General Bergevoy, who was a cosmonaut at Star City, met me. Well, and so I didn't see an American for about four hours. I had this traumatic experience in the state funeral out there in Red Square, standing there at attention in front of Lenin's tomb. It was it was quite a moving experience. General, what would we're wrapping up here? What would you say is your most, your proudest accomplishment in your career? Oh golly, I've had a bunch of. Well, I think you know, demonstrating the first rendezvous in space, flying that first one to the moon, the first lunar module to the moon, picking out the landing site, demonstrating the first rendezvous around the moon. Back then, on the way back, setting the all-time world speed record, which still stands, Mach 36. You are the fastest man in uh, on Earth right now. That's right. Yeah. Fortunately, my two colleagues are no longer with us, so I am the fastest man alive. Hope to keep that status for a few years. Yes, sir. We, we do, do too. We do too, General. And uh, and then after that, I went back in the Air Force and. And finally, the deputy chief of staff, but I was at Edwards, the first experimental stealth airplane arrived, which is, I had in Area 51. The commander of the flight test center at Edwards is also the commander of Area 51 for operations. And so, you know, nobody could talk about it. Even the vice chief of staff of the Air Force didn't know about it. The only, let's see, two, only, uh, uh, four congressmen, two in appropriations, two in the same way the Senate. Knew about it and a couple of senior staff. All the, nobody else knew about it, so it was one of the best secrets. That was called Have Blue. And then from there, I got the idea of doing what I saw the Soviet strengths or weaknesses so that we could take out the command and control. This would really put them at a big disadvantage. So, uh, so that's how I, I really pushed stealth. When I was the deputy chief of staff for research development, that's when I, there's no statement of need requirement. I started the F-117A, 
which will be out at the Stafford Museum. It'll arrive out there probably January, February. It'll take us two or three months to make the final rehab on it. And we have a stealth gallery out there. And one afternoon in the hotel room in Chicago in 79, uh, early 79, I met with the head of Northrop, which had a slow speed and a low observable self planar ability. They wanted to know what to do with it. I met with the chairman just for a cup of coffee in the room. What should they do to take advantage of technology? So I was really frustrated with Carter. You know, Cancel the B-1 bomber. He continued to delay the MX missile. The Trident submarine program had big technical problems in it. It was also running late. So we didn't have much going. The Soviets were building these ICPs like that. I figured the one way we could do is get a stealth bomber. So I outlined the specs. I called the advanced technology bomber. I gave it to him. So do these studies on your own for a few months. Maybe we can get you some money. And I flew out the next week to Latvia to Burbank. Went, that was the famous Kelly Johnson, probably one of the great aircraft designers of all time. He did the U-2, the SR-71, the P-38, the P-80, F-104. And so I gave me that. So I told him, I said, Kelly, start to work. See how big you can meet these specs. So, so that's what that became known as the B-2 bomber. I think, General, that early on you were also a champion of drones and unmanned aerial vehicles at the same time. So your impact in stealth technology, drones, I think there were some particularly remarkable cruise missiles and a variety of other things. Your your footprint has just been tremendous and thankfully yeah. continues to be tremendous. Well, thank you. Yes, I did start the long-range advance uh, a cruise missile, stealth, had a range of 2,000 miles with a nuclear warhead. And you have a B-52 could carry six under each wing. So you could launch, a B-52 could launch over London, and it could hit Moscow. And that's over 2,000, I think you go 2,000 miles, nautical miles. So... You go, the Brits wouldn't see it, the French wouldn't see it, Germans, East or West Germans, and uh, Poland, or belly of Russia, even the Soviet Union. You know. And uh, and finally, my baseline, I think 1,450 up, would produce 461 when the Soviets finally found out what we had. And they, you know, they cried uncle, came to the negotiating table. For strategic arms reductions. Well, General. Oh, General, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to talk to you, and uh, you know you don't get an opportunity very often to talk to someone that is a true American hero. And we just appreciate your time so much today. In general, well, hey, thank you. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry, General. This is Bob, but I just wanted to tell you thank you for being such a good friend to. Everyone in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma History Center, would not be what it is today without your help. Dan and I talk often about your early help and wanting to get some flown spacecraft back to Oklahoma and us working on that together. 
and thank you for all your service to the country, to the state, and uh, for building your museum in Weatherford. That is a jewel of a museum, and we want to encourage everyone listening to take the time to go to Weatherford, Oklahoma, to see the Tom Stafford Museum. The collection that well, you've assembled out there is extraordinary. I think, in my mind, probably the most complete Gemini collection that you're going to find anywhere, in addition to all the other elements of aircraft and other aspects of uh, of the space program. It's truly extraordinary. Well, thank you, Bob. Dan. That's, I never wanted a museum named after me. TripAdvisor is now ranked as what we've grown into is in the top 10% in the U.S. as far as museums like that. Mm-hmm. Well, so, General, thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you, and um, we appreciate you making time for us. Thank hey, you, more than glad to. So it was really great to talk to you, Bob, and Dan again, and also. Right? Um, I hope to get back to Oklahoma. Oh, I will be back <clears throat> this month. Oh, um, wonderful. Because they have the... Uh, they're building a new terminal at the airport. It's so busy. And I'll be, they won't be, I'll be back there for the dedication, but also the day before, they built a new school with a second, third, and fourth grade for all the Weatherford students in there to go to school, and they named it after me. That'll be dedicated the day before. Oh, wonderful. Max, yeah. So, hope somebody can get out and see it. <laughs> Thank you. We, we hope to see you then. Thank you, General, for okay, everything. All right. Take care, well, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. What a fascinating interview with General Stafford. I mean, just hearing his stories and some of the things that he has done and some of the harrowing situations he's been in, what a man. I think he's about 90 years old, Dan. Is that correct? I think 90, 92, somewhere right in there, yes. I mean, he sounds like he could jump on and go go fly a, an experimental plane tomorrow. To this day, he's one of the busiest people you'll ever find. Uh, he's here. He's around the country. He's still going to the Soviet Union, now Russia, from time to time. Uh, just incredibly active. And one of the things that impressed me with our conversation and knowing him a little bit is that in addition to his vast technical expertise, he's also a visionary and a teacher. He's always sharing. He's always communicating. He's always looking for new ways. And I think that's part of the remarkable nature of what he brings to the table. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you all, and we will get back with you on our next podcast episode. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a Very Okay podcast hosted by Trey Thompson and Dr. Bob Blackburn. The podcast is produced by the Oklahoma Historical Society. Visit us at okhistory.org and find us on social media by searching for at okhistory. I encourage you to purchase a membership to OHS to help us continue our mission to collect, preserve, and share Oklahoma's unique and fascinating history.